Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, we talk with Carl Chapman, Chief Executive at Kim Technologies. After studying law at the University of Birmingham in England, Carl decided to go in a different direction from the lawyer path, instead working in finance and later starting a recruitment and training consultancy. Carl went on to found Advisor Plus Business Solutions, a leading advisory outsourcing company in the UK. Advisor Plus then created Riverview Law, which many of you have heard of, and which focused on providing managed services to corporate legal departments. Carl was chief executive at Riverview Law, then strategic advisor following its acquisition by Ernst & Young. Today, he serves as director at Kim Technologies, a leading no-code, configurable technology platform that helps organizations, legal and non-legal, automate their workflows, case management, and documents. It had been a while since I'd caught up with Carl, and it was great to finally have a chance to reminisce a little bit. In today's conversation, Carl talks about his decision to go from law school to business, the early business challenges of Riverview Law, the wide scope of Kim Technology Services, and the key factor for large language models of the future. Thank you for listening. Carl, so great to see you again. It's been a long time. Uh, it's been far too long, Stephen, so it's great to see you. I want to talk about Kim Technologies here, here in a second, but let's talk about your path to get there because you're not the traditional path that people follow. You've been breaking ground for a long time. You did study law, but you never went into the practice of law as we think about it traditionally. Tell us a little bit about the journey leading us up to Advisor Plus. Oh, I, I, I tell you what, it's quite interesting. I'm absolutely confident that the professors at the law school were delighted that I didn't go into the law because I had a, fan- <laughs> I had a fantastic time at university um, and I enjoyed uh, reading law uh, and all the things it gave me. But I would have been, I think, a, a pretty poor lawyer. Um, Why so, do you say that? I think it goes back to your, your comments about strange paths. I, I liked different challenges. I liked um, setting things up. I liked the experimentation uh, of business. And I think I'd have struggled given the way law is managed as a business, or rather the way law is not managed as a business. So I think I'd have struggled with that as well. So I think I'd have found it very difficult to be inside a partnership. So you didn't go into practice, not in the traditional sense. I know you had some gigs before Advisor Plus, but let's start with Advisor Plus, which was an outsourced HR company. And interestingly, that business sprung out of our previous company, which had been an outsourced IT training and recruitment business. So that the pattern was the outsourcing and the managed service element. And the thing that I liked about both businesses was the annuity stream, the fact that you had visibility of earnings, and that gave you an opportunity to plan. And so when we'd sold the training and recruitment company uh, to an American company in 1996, I stayed on and helped um, settle it into their ownership in 99. And after about six weeks at home, my wife decided that it was probably a very good idea that I went back to work. Um, <laughs> and I think I, th- I think on that decision hinges the fact we've still been married for 35 years with some ups and downs, but, you know, that was the right decision. And we, we set up Advisor Plus, and, and when we set up Advisor Plus, an, an HR managed service company, the thing we looked at was our previous business and said, what did we like? What didn't we like? And in our previous business, what we liked particularly was 
the long-term annuity streams, the fact that we had few locations in Advisor Plus. We had a lot of locations in our previous business. Uh, so it's very important that we looked at what was good and what was bad in our first company. And, and then we employed the, deployed the lessons of that in our second company, Advisor Plus. And we literally wanted to have a business which we could grow uh, from few locations that used data and technology to drive the business forward and relationships with customers and that allowed us to create long-term annuity streams and hence Advisor Plus came to play. Uh, and it was focused on uh, the HR market. And it was focused on employee relations. And so we weren't doing payroll and processing and transactional activity. Organizations were outsourcing to us their employee relations activities. And what we did was effectively free the HR team to move up the value curve and do what they should be doing. So our proposition to an HR director was very straightforward. Outsource the low and mid-complex work to us. We can do it better, more efficiently, and quicker than you can. We can use data and dedicated teams of people to facilitate that. And you can free your team to do what they should be focused on, the higher value stuff, which helps you drive the business forward. So Advisor Plus proposition was very straightforward and very simple to execute. That's certainly a powerful message. And one that uh, I'd like to say we got to immediately on day one when we set up Advisor Plus, but we did a bit of wriggling about before we got to a stage where we could articulate it clearly. Um, but it's Advisor Plus is still an extremely successful business, growing very strongly under its new owners. And as you can probably tell, Stephen, the seeds of what became Riverview Law came out of that because what was our proposition to HR directors? We will free your time, your people's time, to move up the value curve and focus on the high value stuff. Well, you think about general counsel and legal teams, where should the internal legal team be focused if it's not on the high value stuff? And to facilitate that, you need to outsource, self-serve, remove the work that you shouldn't be doing and use third parties maybe to do the managed service element. So the seeds of Riverview Law were founded in Advisor Plus. And of course, all data and technology driven. The key to Advisor Plus was data and technology as it was to Riverview Law and is to Riverview Law and is to Kim. You sort of touched on this and, and it was Advisor Plus leading to Riverview Law where I was going. At the time you started Riverview Law, it may not be that unusual a business model these days, but it certainly was then. It was really interesting. It was then to the legal market. If you think about outsourced managed services, it's been involved in other sectors for the previous 20-odd years. So you're right. What we found very strange when we came into the legal market was that Riverview Law was seen as this fantastic, innovative, transformational activity. We're sitting there going, well, hold on. This has been happening in other functions. We did it in the recruitment market in the 1990s. So it tells you, I think it tells you more about the state of the legal market than it did about the managed service or outsourced proposition. All we did was take an idea from another sector or from other sectors, actually, and play it into the legal market. Well, that's often viewed as innovative for, uh, for the legal industry, isn't it? <laughs> we could have a long conversation about the definition of innovation and then things like the definition of, um, well, we'll come back to it in a minute, actually. Yes, you're absolutely spot on, Stephen. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the challenges you faced at Riverview. It's, it's a great concept. It's worked in other industries, and yet you're applying these novel, in air quotes, concepts to the legal industry. I remember us having many dinners talking about this. So I know I know it was a unique challenge for you. Talk a little bit about some of the challenges and how you overcame it to make such a successful business. Uh, yeah, there were, there were lots of challenges. And so bear in mind, we, we thought we started with an advantage, which was we'd deployed the same model in Advisor Plus. So Advisor Plus, HR professionals, we employed them. They worked in dedicated teams focused on customer accounts. They used technology and management information and data to inform their decision-making and being proactive. 
And we helped HR teams move up the value curve and the HR director, that's what they wanted. So it's high value, relatively low cost, fixed price, allowed them to drive shame. So we thought when we set up Riverview Law, well, we've worked the model out. Uh, this will be relatively easy. So we'll now be employing lawyers, paralegals and other professionals to deliver the same service to general counsel. So general counsel, here's the proposition. We can help you move your teams up the value curve, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and by the way, look at the cost benefit given the cost of employing your own legal team, because effectively your in-house team is an arbitrage against law firms and the cost of third-party law firms. So we thought it would be easier in the HR, in the, in the legal market than it would, was in the HR market. That didn't prove to be the case. I was going to say that was. Yeah. Logically, phenomenally spot on, practically and in execution, absolutely not the case. And I think there were several reasons for it in no particular order. It's always surprised me that corporate legal departments have not moved faster in driving change in the legal market because the general counsels pay the bill. They've always had the power to drive change. And for reasons which we could spend a lot of time discussing, that power has not been exercised in a way you find it exercised in other functions. Um, You think about the way finance, HR, sales, IT have used their purchasing power to help shape the supply chain and drive value. That's not happened in legal. So I think one of the things we underestimated was the inertia. And we, uh, how often has this been the case in life, Stephen? Logic and rationality doesn't always win, does it? No, it doesn't, particularly in this business. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So number one, I think we underestimated the inertia. Secondly, I think we underestimated, which I think is changing, we underestimated the way in which legal was able to remain like an island in the middle of the rest of the business. You know, to some extent, it still is the analog outlier in a digital transformation. And it was able to protect itself in that. And procurement found it quite hard to work out how to purchase legal services efficiently, given the way in which the lawyers then manage the process or are involved in the process. Procurement must have been one of your bigger allies in this process. Well, they were, but they found it very difficult to break through the well, you know, none of us want to go to jail and this is legal and laws are very complex black box subject. And think about all the risks. And so I think they found it hard as well to drive a normal procurement process. Now, by the way, if there is such a thing as a normal procurement process, we could have a long conversation about the difficulties of procurement because, you know, just driving prices down doesn't actually deliver value for organizations going forward. So procurement, we'd have thought would have been a more aggressive supporter, but it found it hard as well. So I think general counsels not exercising the power. I think procurement struggling to find the way to do it more efficiently and effectively and bring the legal team on board in a coherent way. I think the complete lack of understanding of the corporate legal departments, and why should they, by the way, understanding technology and data. We used to have to explain the power of the data and how it could help them manage risk, preempt problems, deliver solutions to the business effectively. We used to have to spend a lot of time at the front end of review law explaining things which we took for granted. And that, that maybe say, say more about our failings, by the way, rather than the audience we're addressing. We should have understood the audience better. Uh, maybe we didn't. But, you know, no great technology or data understanding. And then that started to get a bit easier when you saw things like uh, legal operations appear and the rise of clock um, and the rise of organizations like yours, you know, where you had those consulting arms that were actually starting to talk about these things. So I think there's a lot of a lot of momentum and, and noise in the marketplace. But to be frank, you and I could go to conferences today and we'd be having the same conversations that you and I were having 15 years ago. Yes, I've noticed that. And it's 
it's it's mad. It is crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. And, you know, we used to have to say to people, I remember we knew and know that all roads lead to the same place. It's intake management. We knew that because that's what exactly what we've done in the 1990s in recruitment and training. It's exactly what we've done in Advisor Plus and HR. All roads lead to the same place. If you cannot manage intake properly, don't expect to manage the rest of the flow effectively. You aren't going to do it. You need to understand what work you've got, where it's come from, who you're allocating it to, where it's in the process, what the risk profile of it is, why you closed it. But we used to have to explain that ad nauseum before people could really just about understand, well, why is it important that we manage? Why do I need to know where that request has come from? Well, hold on. How much time are you spending going back to the the person making the request, trying to understand what they're really asking you to do? How do you know this is a priority compared to all the other activities you've got? And, you know, and interestingly, Stephen, I was at a conference. Um, I don't go to very many these days, not, not legal ones anyway, uh, about, I don't know, three months ago. And literally the conversation was some eureka moment. Do you know what? We need to manage intake better. I thought, crumbs, I need to leave. <laughs> I need to go now. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think we understand, you know, I think we understand. And this is not, is it a criticism of the legal mark? I suppose at one level it is. But also there's a reality here, which is, why would lawyers understand the conversation about data and technology? Why would they have to? Why would they need to think about process and automation? They're focused on different things. So I think partly some of the early challenges we had, which we overcome, uh, overcame, but I think it's partly our naivety. We thought that logic and rationality prevail, and it didn't. You were one of the first movers into this space, and there's certainly an advantage to that. But as, you, as you're just describing, there are also obstacles and challenges to that as you're trying to bring a, in this case, a new approach to legal and overcoming. How did you overcome those challenges? Because I know you did. Stamina, <laughs> patience, a constant checking. Because, I mean, there's, there was an element of, I can't think of the right phrase, so, so let me just say pig-headedness. I, I, hopefully that translates. Absolute determination we're going to do this. But we kept on checking. Look, hold on. Is this model right? Because if you're, if you're struggling at the front end, there are two answers. One, you've got the model wrong. Or two, you're right but early and it will come. Now, we always persuade ourselves it was the latter, and therefore, it was utter, utter determination and drive and going for it. And we had a great, a phenomenal team. And then we got lucky. We got lucky with some some really good early adopters. So we did find a few general counsel and associate general counsel who were fed up with the status quo, who wanted to make change. And they opened doors. And the nice thing is they were big blue chip organizations. And so that created some sort of, I would say lawyers, but maybe most people don't. No one really wants to be first. So when you can see that another organization is using Riverview Law or is using Kim or whatever it happens to be, it makes it easier for the next one, next one to do it. So I think it was an element of sheer determination, but also we got a bit lucky uh, because we got some early adopters. Well, luck helps, doesn't it? Do you know what? Luck is, uh, was it? It was Jack Nicholas, I think. Uh, the harder I practice, the lucky I get. And we certainly had an element of that. We were practicing really hard. Yeah. So one of the things that always... It's a minor point, but I think it's illustrative. You never referred to your your folks as clients. They were always customers. And you were adamant about that. Yeah. To me, that epitomizes the different approach that you brought to the business. Talk a little bit about that. I'd like to say at the front end, initially, it was a deliberate strategy. But if I said that, that would probably be a bit of post ad hoc rationalization. I think it's because we never spoke about clients in everything we'd ever done before and all the businesses we've been involved in. Everyone was a customer 
and you dealt with that customer accordingly. And you were very proactive in terms of monthly review and planning meetings, the provision of information and data, and making sure you had the proper multi-stakeholder management when you're talking to a large organization. So it's only when we got into the legal market and people started picking up on the fact we use custom, we thought, well, hold on a second, we'll make a differentiator of this. We'll carry on deliberately playing customer. And actually, what other language should we be also looking at now and using better? I mean, you know, you and I have had the conversation before, and, and you know, it, it's a conversation that goes around and around and around. Fee earners and non-fee earners, for heaven's sake. Lawyers and non-lawyers. I mean, it's nonsense. Think about in-house legal teams. That's the thing that always shot me, in-house legal teams. I've never seen an in-house accounting team or an in-house recruitment team or an in-house sales team. They don't define themselves against the external market, yet the legal team does, which probably tells you another part of the story uh, as why challenges has been, you know, it's been so difficult. So I think language became very important to us as we went through. But when we started the front end, I think it was an element of, of luck because we just used that language anyway. <laughs> well, you stick with what you know. Well, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And maybe, you know, again, I think that's an element of, of why, why at the front end we underestimated the size of the challenge because we didn't realize the size of the challenge. And maybe if we had, we'd have attacked it in a different way. But how much research can you do? Right. Yeah, only, only so much. At some point, you have to believe in your business model and take, and take the next leap. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I recall this is in the pre Kim days. I recall having dinner with you in London at, at one point. You had just returned from California. And you're all excited about the advances in technology and that that was the future. Tell us a little bit about that, not going into any of the proprietary information, but just as a general proposition, what got you so excited? And, and was that a turning point for your thinking? We'd always been technology and data driven because you can't run a managed service business. When, you, when, you do it, when you're providing to a customer, outsource managed services at a fixed price, boy, you better have good technology and good data. Because otherwise, your margins will very soon be eroded and you will not deliver value. And you have to have technology that allows you to scale across multiple customers. You can't have individual deployments for individual customers. It's got to be a global deployment. So it always been technology and um, data driven. But you're right. As you and I discussed, I used to go out to the US regularly. And in all of those trips, I always made sure that I saw two or three startup companies to understand what's happening with technology. Um, and usually I'd tack it onto the back of a conference, uh, you know, whether it was the conferences at Stanford or various other things. And it was absolutely clear that the whole no code revolution was going to have a dramatic impact. And it was very important to us that we therefore had a no code configurable platform. And the thing I didn't appreciate then, which I do now is actually in approaching technology. It's important not to look at it just as a, at a vertical like legal from my perspective. It's actually business technology that happens to be applied to these areas, legal being one of them. But absolutely at the time, you're right, we came back and said, right, we've got to turn our strategy on, our, on its head and we've got to become even more technology and data driven. We've got to empower our people at the front end of the business. We've got to enable them to actually make the changes to the platform in response to monthly review and planning meetings. Because if we don't, we are not going to be competitive and we are going to be and it's interesting what's happening now with generative AI, managed services businesses will be supplanted. So we need to be ahead of that curve as well. So we differentiate our own managed service business, but actually we are going to have to have a technology business here. Is that the genesis of Kim? Yes, absolutely. So we were looking for a platform for Riverview Law and stumbled across Kim. In a wonderful meeting with the founder of Kim, uh, wasn't called that at the time, Richard Yorn, 
probably the only genius Stephen I've ever met. An absolute, I mean, an absolute incredible man who has the ability to make remarkably complex things extremely simple. That's a rarity. Uh, it, 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 the guy is just incredible. So if, if I tell you what Kim does, this will just give you a simple example of it. What Kim does, and you'll see how this resonates in the context of what's happening with ChatGPT and everything else, what Kim does and what Kim's pattern from 2014, bear in mind, 2014, Kim generates applications, software applications, web applications from customers' existing content, their letters, forms, records, checklists. It generates applications. Kim's been doing a lot of the stuff. Richard's insight was so powerful. It's been doing a lot of the stuff that people are talking about today, but we've been doing it for the last seven, eight years. And now the momentum is building very, very strongly as a result. So you're right. The genesis of where Kim came in was our desire for a no-code configurable platform, and we met Richard. And that was probably the best stroke of luck we had. And the only thing I wish is I wish I'd met him five years earlier. Well, you, you, you met him at the right time, as it turns out. It's worked out for everybody. So, yeah, it's been quite good. So at some point, the path of Kim and the path of Riverview Law diverge, where you sell Riverview Law to EY and you focus on Kim. And I assume that's arising out of your belief about the power of technology and the ability to change the business and the ability for for EY to scale Riverview. Do I have that right? Yeah. So where we got to with Riverview Law was the market was now established because we set up Riverview Law in 2011. We sold Riverview Law to EY in 2018. And over those seven years, we proved the model. The market was clearly becoming well-defined. Other people had emerged and were emerging. It was clear that managed services were going to be a major part of the legal ecosystem um, over the next 10, 15 years. And if you want to play in that marketplace, you need to have scale because managed services is a scale play. So we had a choice. Either we had to go for it and raise a huge amount of capital and really drive Kim to be a massive global outsourcing business, or we pick a partner who can take it there. And for us, the, the decision was to actually find a, the appropriate partner, and I'm glad we found EY, a great partner. That was, to some extent, influenced, Stephen, as well, by what we saw happening on technology, absolutely. As you say, we'd already demerged Kim from Riverview Law, and that's partly because it's an entirely separate business. Kim is a SaaS products business. A review Law is a managed service business. They're two different business models. So they're always going to be separated. But yeah, it was the right. The timing was good for everybody. It was good for EY, it's good for Review Law and its team. And it was right for Kim as well. And so the last question on Riverview, and then I want to turn more to Kim. How has Riverview prospered under EY? Because they certainly have the scale and they have the ability to support the business. We were there for a few years after the acquisition. Yeah, and I think, you know, the one thing that becomes abundantly clear, I've never worked in a business the size or the scale of an EY. And it was intriguing, Stephen. Of course, there are challenges when you've got a business that size in terms of the speed of decision making and the fact that the partners and the national organizations, you'll recognize this from a law firm. You know, so there are some challenges to it. Absolutely. But I tell you something, the sheer momentum and scale in organizations like that and the ability to make things happen is incredible. If they make a decision that they want to play in a particular space and they're committed to making it happen, they'll make it happen. And so as you saw after Riverview Law, they acquired Pangea 3 and did a whole series of uh, structurings, which actually uh, organized the businesses in different ways. And I've got absolutely no doubt they're going to be a major legal managed service provider over the next five, 10 years. 
as I think two of the other big three will be as well. I'm curious as to your reaction of this without focusing on EY specifically, but your experience. One of the things I believe that is the advantage that the big four has over traditional law firms, apart from just your size and capital, which are all advantages, of course, is their history of working with multiple disciplines. Absolutely spot on. And the ability to bring multidisciplinary teams to solve client problems. Law firms are getting better at that, but historically that's not been a strength of big law firms. It's to your point, the lawyers and the non-lawyers. Do you see it the same way or, or am I missing the point there? No, Stephen, I, 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 you are not missing the point at all. I mean, the thing that struck me when you go into an organization like that, so think about Fortune 500 Company A, the number of people within EY who've got client relationship with that organization at multi-layers is mind-boggling, cross-functional from the C-suite all the way down. Very, very, very hard to beat, very hard to replicate and a major strength. And of course, they have all of the advantages that go from the sheer scale in the sense that you didn't used to get fired for buying IBM, you rarely get fired for buying EY or one of the other big three. So, you know, their relationships, I think, are a major advantage without any shadow of doubt. So let's talk a little bit about Kim in in some more detail. Expand the elevator pitch a little bit. You said a little bit of what Kim does, but Who's your market and what are you selling to them? What a really good question about who's your market, okay? Because given this is partly a legal conversation, it's a really good question. So let me tell you what Kim does first. If you go right to the core of it, Kim stops organizations re-keying data. Now, in the US, that costs US organizations about 3.1 trillion a year, which sounds like a ridiculously high number until you start doing the calculations and work it through. If I just look at our customers, I think it's probably even a conservative estimate, even in the US. So think about what avoiding rekeying data means. Well, how do we do that? Very easy. Kim, because it's no code, enables the business users in an organization, people who've got no IT development or coding expertise whatsoever. It enables the business users in those organizations to generate applications of their existing content, those letters, those forms, those records, those checklists, those contracts. And when they do that, it creates standard operating procedures, which captures the appropriate data. And then off that data allows them to generate the record, generate multiple documents off that record and use the data to populate other systems. And I'll give you a very simple example. And I'm deliberately steaming to give you one which is not legal. I've got many legal ones, but let's take one which is not legal. Imagine if you and I are in the HR department of an organization and we decide that we want to automate our onboarding checklist, the form we have to complete when anybody joins the organization, a new person joining the company. And usually it's done with an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document, and it's you know it's, it's a bit of a cumbersome process. You and I decide we want to automate it. And what we do, we say to uh, Simon, who's one of our junior HR people, got no IT development coding expertise whatsoever, we say, Simon, take this form, tag and upload it into Kim, create the web application, which is the onboarding checklist, and publish it for the HR team. Simon does that in probably about two hours. No trading, he just does it in two hours. So suddenly, there's now the checklist is a web application which has been published for the HR team to use. Imagine if that link has been published on Workday, if that's the system they're using. Whatever the HR system is, it's a link in there. It could be on SharePoint. It could be anywhere. But wherever it is, imagine if we've now got a new person joining next week. Another HR member of the team clicks the link, up pops the web application. They don't even know that they're in Kim. 
They put the appropriate information in about the individual. And by the way, it could be pre-populated from other systems, but I'll come back to that. They put the information in. When they press submit, it does the following. It generates the record. So we've got the record of the details of the new joiner. It automatically takes data out of that record and creates the welcome letter to the new joiner, the company handbook for the new joiner, the information about the location they're going to be in. It generates all the documents required automatically off that one form. Not only does it do that through Kim's low-code integration, it takes packages of data from the form. It sends this package of data to Workday to create the HR record. It takes this package of data and sends it to SAP to create the payroll record or whatever systems they're using. It sends this data to Jira for the new laptop request. So literally, by pressing one button, that's automatically happening. Oh, by the way, if you want to go further, imagine if the recruitment tool that's been used to recruit the individual is success factors or any other. When the contract from the employee, new employee has been signed, if the recruiter presses a button in success factors, Kim will automatically drag the data out of success factors, complete the form without any HR participation, create the record and do everything I've just discussed. So that's what Kim does with no coding activity whatsoever. So where Kim is very powerful is it could take that offer letter. It can take that contract, that NDA, that distribution agreement. It can take that compliance form. So imagine if you wanted to confirm that 1,800 people in your organization had attended that mandatory training program, whatever it happened to be. You upload the form once into Kim, press a button. It automatically goes to the 1,800. They never see Kim. They just see the web application pop up. They complete, they attended, understand their obligations. They press submit. They receive an email back saying, thank you very much. We acknowledge receipt. Here's a copy for your records. We get all the data on the 1800. We know who's responded, who's not responded. We can chase people who've not responded. And then when we've got all the information, we can report on it internally and externally for auditors and internal regulators and whatever else is required. So it is about the automation of people's existing documents and content by the business because they're close to the front end of it and avoiding all the rekeying that costs all of us time, energy, and hassle. That's amazing. So who's your market? So good news, bad news. For Kim, all these documents are the same. So whether it's an IT function using using it for a an information security request to suppliers, whether it's the legal function doing it for an NDA or a distribution agreement, whether it's HR doing it for an onboarding checklist. For Kim, it's all the same. If you think about it, it's one technology platform. We're agnostic. We don't care what the documents are. So here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is any function or any role. Here's the bad news any function or any role, because actually (laughs) you've got to be too big. So where are we focused? We have a lot of activity in legal. Law firms were never a market for us. They're a big market for us now. We've got a lot of law firms using the platform. It's rising every day. So corporate legal departments, law firms, compliance, and contract management. If you take that as one bucket. Second bucket is interesting. It's emerging. Um, It's healthcare, uh, because you think about all of the... Well, you imagine, if you imagine, can you imagine your healthcare experience, all the documents you've got to complete from, you know, imagine bringing people into um, a hospital or a GP, but also discharging people and everything in between. Imagine all the data and the documents in there that need to be captured. And one other area which we're seeing a lot of interest in, by the way, allied to the law firms, accounting firms, we're seeing a lot of interest from accounting firms, but we align that almost with the same group that I've decided for. The other one will be local government and national government. So those would be the three big ones, I think. But we've started, we've, we've played with the low hanging fruit, the people we already work with. So law firms, corporate legal departments, compliance and contract management. And now it's extending into these other areas. Now, this is an important point though, Stephen. Here's the good news. 
The thing that always surprised me about the legal market is how expensive the technology is in the legal market. It's remarkably expensive in terms of the prices that law firms and corporate legal departments pay for technology. That's partly because these are very specific technologies for the legal market. Actually, this is business technology applicable to a wider marketplace. Therefore, the pricing can reflect that. So one of the advantages the legal market is going to get from activities that we take is the ability to have software priced at commodity levels because the markets are bigger. That's incredible. You've been playing in the world of intelligent automation for some time. What's been the impact of this hype cycle on generative AI on your business? It can only be positive. Well, the first thing to say is suddenly everyone's got a generative AI strategy, which I think is fascinating. (laughs) Yes, they do. Um, It's quite intriguing. So here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is this is serious. It will have a material effect in terms of this emerging technology. But it's not even emerging. It's been there for decades. But the fact is now broken into the public psyche and the business psyche through ChatGPT is going to accelerate and facilitate major change. So this is really, really interesting seeing some of the stuff coming out because some of it's very, very powerful. But you and I know the weaknesses of a ChatGPT and GPT-4 is none of us are going to put confidential information into a public available environment. So what does that mean in practice? What that means in practice is that organizations will have their own private LLM, large language model, and the private LLMs are going to be built on the core of their own information, plus they'll bring in appropriate information externally, having validated it first. So interestingly, when you strip everything away, all roads lead back to the same place, the quality of the data. By the way, you and I could have said that about anything over the last 50 years, because yes, we bad, data in, bad data out. So the key to the large language models of the future for an internal organization is going to be the quality of the data they bring into the LLM, the way they validate it, and then the way in which they use it with generative AI. So the good news is, actually, it's going to have a massive impact. Not bad news. The challenging news is the same problem exists. You've got to have accurate data. Otherwise, you end up with the same challenges you've got with ChatGPT, where it can hallucinate remarkably convincingly. And by the way, does this have to be one of the greatest PR campaigns of all time? How can they get away with it hallucinates? No, 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 it's wrong. Right, can we please? <laughs> it's wrong. And, and yeah, the phenomenal PR and marketing. I, you know, I, I, I want to get hold of the marketing director of ChatGPT that's br- or OpenAI. That's brilliant. But the opportunities here are significant, no doubt about it. And I think the key is not only does everyone have to have a, jokingly, a Gen AI strategy, I feel for the CTOs because the CTOs are now getting pressure from all quarters in terms of what's our Gen AI strategy. Yet they're trying to work with an existing infrastructure and technology stack, which they're already trying to reduce, rightly so. They need to reduce their tech stack. So they've got some big decisions to make over the next couple of years about what's our LLM, large language model stack, that's going to be fit for the future. Now, where does Kim fit into all that? Well, if you think about what I said about we generate applications, we capture data and we avoid rekeying. Actually, at the moment, we push data to other systems. Well, we'll be pushing validated data to the large language models. So one customer recently described as, well, you're a pre-processor to the LLM. Now, if pre-processor means you don't have to validate the data we've collected because we're pushing it through, then that may be the case. So I think we've got a very interesting role to play in terms of what happens next. But again, it's all because all roads lead to the same place. It's all about the data. Absolutely. Does that make sense from your perspective? Is that- No, it, it is what I see. And I think there's the explosion of generative AI and all the talk around it due to the unique open AI chat GPT impact has been fascinating to watch. 
and you're, you're sort of in this, it's beyond hype. It's sort of almost panic curve about people being scared. They're going to get left behind. And yet your point about the CTOs is, is a good one that you've, you've got to have good data. You've got to have a tech stack that can deal with this kind of stuff. You can't just jump in and all these companies that are coming out with generative AI products. I don't think you can just jump in and just slap it on and, and assume it's going to be successful and people are going to adopt it. I think you need a strategy, but you need to be thoughtful and you need to understand the market, you need to understand the capabilities and how it fits into your existing program. Yeah, and I think I think you're spot on, Stephen. And the other thing about the strategy is it's a strategy that's going to evolve very, very fast. So we're already on version 12 of our brief to customers on generative AI and the opportunities going forward. We're on version 12 in the space of two months, three months, whatever it happens to be. So I think the evolution of the strategy is going to be rather critical. And the CTOs, I love speaking to them, but they've got one heck of a challenge on their hands. So, you know, anything we can do to help them, we're delighted to do so. Absolutely. Carl, I know we've run over. I appreciate your time and it's been a fascinating conversation. It's been great to catch up with you again. It's been far too long. It's been far too long. Thank you very much as well. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.